With the passing of Ahmad Shah Abdali and the utter collapse of the Mughal Empire, the Sikhs see unbounded opportunities to consolidate their power. New threats appear on the horizon as the Marathas rise again and the British East India Company turns its eyes toward Delhi. Before we begin the episode, I have some exciting news. The stories that you have enjoyed so much on this podcast are now available in print. Penguin Books recently published The Story of the Six, 1469-1708, which corresponds to the first two seasons. You have been generous with your praise, listeners, and many of you have contacted us to ask how you can support The Story of the Six podcast. You'll be happy to learn that we are now on Patreon. Please go to tinyurl.com psots and make a contribution, which will help fund our new endeavors, The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire, and the Gurmat Sangeet podcast. The year was 1771. The Mughal Emperor Shah Alam had been living under the protection of the British at Allahabad for six years. An emperor in name only, he had been making attempts to return to Delhi to reclaim his capital and his empire, which had been ruled in his name by Najib Khan Rohila. The British through their influence on one of Shah Alam's courtiers, Munir Uddola, tried to hold him in check, ensuring that he received his pension regularly, which kept the emperor in comfort. Najib Khan Rohila, whose health had been failing, had been signaling to the emperor that he would not be able to hold Delhi for very long. The Sikhs had become the masters of the Punjab, and controlled the districts of Sarand, as well as the areas of modern-day Haryana and the upper Dwab between the Yamuna and the Ganga rivers. Some of the more ambitious Sikh chiefs had been in correspondence with the emperor, inviting him to Delhi and promising to guarantee his safety. A letter had arrived from Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia as well in 1768, assuring him that his entire empire would be restored to him if he returned to Delhi. The emperor replied to Jassa Singh Aluwalia that he would consider the proposal if the Sikh chiefs presented a united front. Privately, he was nervous about the intentions of the Sikhs, who had become greatly renowned for their valor after their struggles with the Mughal governors of Lahore as well as Amitya Abdali. The emperor feared that if the Sikhs took control of Delhi, they could well depose him and place a puppet Mughal prince on the throne. As the emperor was casting about for a powerful ally 
who might help him recover his throne, he considered various options. The British, who he had awarded the profitable eastern provinces to, did not seem to have an appetite for adventures in the north and the west. Shuja al-Dola, the Nawab of Awadh and his vizier, was also a client of the British, and while he paid lip service to supporting his emperor's ambitions, he remained evasive and non-committal. The Jats, who had been powerful under Raja Surajmal, and to a lesser extent under his son Jawahar Singh, were a spent force as well. Raja Jawahar Singh had died, and they were roiled by dissension and internal conflicts. The Marathas had been rebuilding their strength after the crushing defeat at Panipat and were starting to flex their military muscle again. After the death of the Peshwa, Balaji Baji Rao, shortly after the Battle of Panipat, his younger son Madhav Rao had succeeded him with his uncle Raghunath Rao as agent. The young Peshwa and his uncle had been at odds for several years, but by 1769, Madhav Rao triumphed and decided to send some of his most able generals north to restore Maratha pride and replenish his coffers. Significant sums of money were owed by Delhi to the Marathas for military assistance rendered in the times of the emperors Muhammad Shah and Ahmad Shah. The Jats and the Rohillas, taking advantage of Maratha weakness after Panipat, had usurped the lands that had been assigned to them by the former vizier, Imadul Mulk. In April 1769, Madhav Rao dispatched a force of 50,000 horsemen from the Deccan, which included 15,000 horsemen under Ramchandra Ganesh and Visaji Krishna, with them were the forces of the Maratha chiefs Tukoji Holkar and Madhaji Sindhya. They were joined by a force of 7,000 Rajput horsemen, contributed by the Raja of Jaipur, who was also an enemy of the Jats. In April 1770, the Marathas, having formed an alliance with Najib Khan Ruhilla as well, won a decisive victory against the Jats. The Jat ranks included two European mercenaries, Rune Madek and William Reinhard Sombre, who had both served in Shah Alam's army during his previous battles against the British. The Jat King Naval Singh took refuge behind the walls of the impregnable fort of Deeg. The victorious Marathas were now roiled by internal conflict compounded by the complicated command structure that the Peshwa had put in place. Ramachandra Ganesh was the supreme commander of the expeditionary force, with Visaji Krishna as his main minister and advisor, while military command was in the hands of Holkar and Sindhya. Ramachandra Ganesh and Visaji Krishna were both veterans of Deccan campaigns with no experience in the north, and Holkar and Sindhya, powerful chiefs in their own right, did not respect their authority. Besides, Holkar and Sindhya were at odds with one another. The conflict escalated over the question of what to do next after the victory over the Jats. Sindhya viewed the Rohillas as the biggest threat 
and propose that the Marathas make peace with Naval Singh, exact tribute from him, and march north to wrest control of Delhi and their lost lands from the Rohilas, especially as it was clear that Amacha Abdali would not return from Afghanistan to relieve Najib Khan if the Marathas attacked him. Ramchandra Ganesh took the opposite view and wanted to form an alliance with Najib Khan Rohilla to recapture the lost Maratha territories in the north. He felt that attacking the Rohillas might result in the formation of a pan-Muslim coalition including all the Rohillas, the Nawab of Awadh and Nawab Ahmed Shah Bangash of Farukhabad, who had with Abdali decimated the Marathas at Panipat. The wily Najib Khan Rohilla sent his Hindu agents secretly to Holkar and succeeded in enlisting his support to thwart Sindhya's plans. With the Peshwa's blessings, a nominal alliance was formed with the Rohillas, which yielded absolutely nothing. Najib Khan Rohilla passed away in October 1770, and control of Delhi passed into the hands of his son Zabita Khan, who, while capable, was relatively inexperienced. The Marathas seized the opportunity and swiftly started plundering the territories of the Rohillas and Ahmad Khan Bangash all the way to the boundaries of Awadh. The resurgence of the Marathas was being watched closely by the Emperor Shah Alam, and in December he sent an envoy to the Maratha chiefs, formally asking for their support. Malaji Sindhya had already sent a secret envoy to the Emperor offering his assistance and promising to restore him to the throne in Delhi. On February 9, 1771, the Marathas expelled Zabita Khan's garrison from Delhi and occupied the city. Visaji Krishna and Madhaji Sindhya took charge of the Queen Mother, Zenith Mehal, and the Crown Prince, Jeevan Bakht, and through them opened formal negotiations with the Emperor Shah Alam. An agreement was reached under which the Marathas would be paid two and a half million rupees and would be awarded Merit and its surrounding districts in return for restoring Shah Alam to the Mughal throne. In addition, they would reserve the right to appoint all imperial officials except the vizier. On January 6, 1772, the emperor entered Delhi, escorted by Madhaji Sindhya. Once again, after a gap of 10 years, a Mughal emperor sat on the throne in Delhi. who had emerged as the greatest power west of the Yamuna, had a unique opportunity. Lahore, the capital of the Punjab, was in their hands. Their nemesis, Amitya Abdali, was dead, as was his most powerful ally in Hindustan, Najib Khan Rohila. 
The Marathas were back, but they had not yet completely recovered from the reverses of Panipat. The back of both Rohila and Jat power had been broken. The powerful state of Avad was under the control of the British, who seemed content with their hold on Bengal and its neighboring provinces. If the Sikhs had united then under a visionary leader, they could have become the most significant power brokers in northern India. In his work, Sketch of the Sikhs, John Malcolm paints a rather dismal picture of the state of the Sikh leadership. Intoxicated with their success, they had given way to all those passions which assail the minds of men in the possession of power. The desire which every petty chief entertained of increasing his territories, of building strong forts, and adding to the numbers of his troops, involved them in internal wars. Though such feuds have no doubt helped to maintain their military spirit, yet their extent and virulence have completely broken down that union which their great legislator, Govind, labored to establish. Quarrels have been transmitted from father to son, and in a country where the infant is devoted to steal and taught to consider war as his only occupation, these could not but multiply to an extraordinary degree. Independent of the comparative large conquests, in which the greater chiefs occasionally engaged, every village has become an object of dispute. And there are a few, if any, in the Punjab, the rule of which is not contested between brothers or near relations. We now return to Raj Khalsa Volume 1 by Gani Gyan Singh to get a sense of the relationship between the six Sardars or chiefs around the time when Shah Alam had been restored to his throne in Delhi. This is translated from the original Punjabi. The ruler of Jammu, Ranjit Deo, had a falling out with his older son, Brijraj Deo, on the matter of succession, as he favored his younger son, Dalail Singh. Brijraj Deo, determined to thwart his father's designs, rebelled, and managed to garner the support of roughly half the army of Jammu. To further strengthen his position, he turned to Chadath Singh Shukarchakya and Jai Singh Kanahiya, two of the most formidable Sikh Sardars and the heads of the Shukarchakya and Kanahiya missiles. The Sikh Sardars came to his aid along with Hakikat Rai, who was a kinsman of Jai Singh's. Not to be outdone, Ranjit Deo made overtures to Chanda Singh, the powerful chief of the Pangi missile, who agreed to come to his aid. A pitched battle was fought between the opposing forces near the village of Udhocha, close to Zafarwal. While the battle raged, Charat Singh's matchlock exploded and he was killed. Jai Singh managed to rally the Shukarchakya forces despite the fall of the great Sikh hero and launched a fierce attack which resulted in the death of Chanda Singh Pangi. Dismayed by the fall of his ally, 
Ranjit Deo decided to an extent an olive branch to his rebellious son and tried to placate the Sikhs by offering tribute. Brijraj Deo was anointed the heir of Jammu and the sum of 125,000 was offered to both the Pangis and the Kanayas. Other Sikh Sardars intervened to patch up the quarrel between the Pangis and the Kanayas, but the damage had been done. Two of the greatest Sikh chiefs lay dead as a result of the mercenary misadventure in Jammu. Charat Singh was succeeded by his young son, Maha Singh, who Jai Singh Kanaya took under his wing. He also arranged a match for the young chief, getting him married to Rajkor, the daughter of the powerful Gajpat Singh of Jind, a prominent chief of the Pulkia missile. The conflict between the Sikh chiefs in Jammu was no isolated incident. Similar conflicts had broken out across the Satluj River in the Malwa as well. Gani Gyan Singh, in Panth Prakash, Volume 2, writes about the conflict between Raja Amar Singh, the monarch of Patiala, and Baghel Singh, the valiant chief of the Karod Singhya missile. Bhoop patile sapai rajasi khatab ves daabne bises des lagyo phir aur hain huto raj chhel jo majhel ka khadar mein bangar o main daab tarf panjor hain rahe samjhaye so majhel baho bhaye taah mani jab neh nrip bhayo tab roh hain misal karodiyon mein hote jo baghel singh Beer kar bankre bidat jag gorehen. Of Patiala, the haughty king, greedy for land, was known to be lands fair that did own majhels, pinjor and bangar coveted he. To desist, the king was asked, uproar great, he didn't agree. Grod Singhya Singh Baghel, warrior storied, known to be. Taki Misalama Hute Jo Singh Aha Tinke Bhi Gao Jab Bhat Dabai Hain Laladu Bhuni Mullapur Law Anek Pind Or Mani Majre Ke Chine Man Bhai Hain Kai Tab Tasak Chamak Ke Bhakel Singh Adik Majhel Nij Sang Me Milai Hain Dund Bhi Bajai Dal Adik Sajai Land that owed the other chiefs, that too he was wont to take. Laladu, Bahuni, Mullapur, villages he made them forsake. In a rage came Singh Baghel, Maja warriors in his wake. In fury came a mighty horde, back again did villages take. Duke dig jaye patiale ke majhel jab. Sun ke Amar Singh bhoop khunsaye hain Kahyo kahan bhayo jo majhel chad aaye sab Or das gun keo na aame bal laaye hain Hoegi chadhai jab bhai malwayan ki Bin hi larai inhe maar ke dabaye ke Maar kar paar satluj ke utar phir Des in keer maar lehen apnaaye ke when Patiala reached Majhel's livid with anger, Amar Singh, from whence have these warriors come? Tenfold more with them they'll bring. Malwa heroes will now attack. 
To their knees we will them bring, across the sutlej they will be sent, in their lands I shall be king. Raja Amar Singh of Patiala summoned several Malwai chiefs to join his forces, as well as the hill Raja of Nahan, Bagail Singh formed a coalition with the other six Sardars who had suffered at the hands of Amar Singh and persuaded Dulaha Singh, Sukho Singh, Bhag Singh, Panga Singh, Hari Singh and Gurbaksh Singh to join his army. A fierce battle was fought at Gurram, a few kilometers south of Patiala. Ave ghor macheo at jor Dohang dis apas me sing ruje, beer bali bud rose bhe bhat, bhur bhire na fire dar suje, apas me hakar hakar, gadi das char, lare boluje, sing apar bhe jakhmi lar, salmuk ah ganete juje. A battle very fierce was joined by valiant Sikh armies too. Filled with anger, warriors brave eagerly clashed and none withdrew. Spewing challenges both sides, fierce battle did for hours ensue. Wounded in battle several sings, relentless did attack renew. Raja Amar Singh's artillery initially scattered Bagail Singh's forces, but the wily chief decided to change his tactics and started laying waste to the king of Patiala's territory. Raja Amar Singh's vakil or agent approached Bagail Singh to sue for peace. Chan Singh yeh man ke gayo Bagail Singh dig ke haath jor kar bulai far ghode ki bag sunai Singh ji bas karo baho bhai, humme tum chogun kar lai, pun tum aur amar mirge sen, ahang thik gur bhai baisen, duhang aur ghar gur ka jano, kehyo bigar nanak baho thano, jo honi thi so hai gai, ab nahe baat badhao nahi. Having this chance, Singh resolved to baghel Singh, then he went, hands folded, greeted the chief, Held his bridle humbly bent. Enough, sir, now you must desist. Punishment fourfold you have sent. Lions both, you and my king, off one faith and off one bent. On both sides the guru's house. Why then should it be laid waste? What happened is now the past, and the quarrel now make haste. Bagail Singh carefully considered Chan Singh's plea. Fir Bhagheel Singh Aes Vakhani, Chan Singh Hum Tumri Mani, Top Chalante Deho Hatai, Bhoop Mile Dere Sam Aai. Her to say was Singh Bhagheel, Your counsel accept I will, I shall come to your king's camp, Once your roaring guns are still. The guns of Patiala fell silent, And a meeting was arranged between Raja Amar Singh and Sardar Bhagheel Singh. Singh le lavai nij chain singh bhupat ko jaye ke milaye so baghel singh ko dayo ek masnad par baithe do mod bhar kusal prasann booj duhang ur te layo baat baho bhant bihar pramarath ki kini man sant duhang oh gor hu bhayo 
फिर पटलेस मोद मान के विशेष बोल साहेब मृगेश गोद सिंह जी पादयो चैन सिंह देन वेंट टू हिज लॉर्ड विद हिम डिड बघेल सिंह ब्रिंग बोथ ऑफ देम सेट ऑन वन थ्रोन कॉर्जल वर बोथ चीफ एंड किंग टॉक्ड कामली ऑफ थिंग्स डिवाइन फ्रगॉटन बाय बोथ द स्क्रैप हैप्पीली द किंग देन सेट his infant in bagheel singh's lap decades earlier another powerful sikh chief had visited the lands of the fulkians and had met with the lord of patiala at that time nawab kapoor singh the most prominent leader of the sikhs initiated ala singh into the khalsa order now his grandson amar singh sat on the patiala throne and welcomed one of the greatest sikhs of his time sardar baghel singh the placing of his infant son and heir sahib singh in baghel singh's lap was a gesture of respect and conciliation kunka karaye guru granth ji khulaye bhoop mod man paaye to diwan lagayo hain sri baghel singh ju ke haath te tahan hi tab sahib mrgesh ju ko सुधा छकायो हैं पूज गुरु ग्रंथ फिर पंथ के निशान पूजे सिंह जी को पोषश अमोल पहरायो हैं जथा अधिकार तथा और सरदारण को खिलत अपार दे के पंथ अपनायो हैं ओपन देन वॉज द होली ग्रंथ टू द गुरुज कोर्ट देन सेट द किंग With his own hands, Singh Bakhel initiated Sahib Singh. Grant saluted, then the flags. Bakhel Singh honored by the king, to his chiefs and warriors brave, fine robes to the king did bring. The conflict had ended amicably, and Bakhel Singh returned to his territories. But it was clear that peace among the missiles was fragile. and the smallest provocations could lead to hostilities with serious consequences Shah Alam presided over an empire that was long past its peak and was bankrupt in more ways than one. The state of his realm could be summarized by this couplet composed by an unknown wag. Sultanat-e-Shah Alam az Delhi ta Palam. The Sultanate of Shah Alam extends from Delhi to Palam. The distance from the Mughal capital to Palam was a mere 25 kilometers the depletion of territory and treasure was matched by the condition of the emperor's court which was largely bereft of both capable generals and administrators shujao dola who was nominally the vizier was preoccupied in his province of avad intent on turning it into an independent kingdom with british support zabita khan the son of the late najib khan rohila 
had nominally been named Mir Bakshi, or Chief Paymaster of the Mughal army, a position which his father had held. However, like the vizier, he was an absentee at court. In the vacuum stepped Mirza Najaf Khan, who hailed from a noble Persian family and had been in Shah Alam's service while he was in exile at Allahabad. When Shah Alam had begun his march to Delhi in 1771, Mirza Najaf Khan had been given the princely sum of 50,000 rupees to raise and equip an army, which he had proceeded to do most effectively. In addition to his military acumen, he was a polished statesman and diplomat and soon became one of Shah Alam's closest advisors. Zabitha Khan had been commanded to appear at court when Shah Alam claimed the Mughal throne and pay the expected fee of succession for his late father's estates and office. He was also expected to pay the dues for the lands belonging to the emperor that his father had occupied, which had been accumulating for several years. When Zabitha Khan refused to comply with the command and part with the money owed, Mirza Najaf Khan was dispatched with the emperor's Maratha allies, Madhaji Sindhya, Tokoji Holkar, and Visaji Krishna to bring him to book. Zabitha Khan was defeated in a battle fought at Shukartal and took refuge with Shuja Uddala, having secured his wealth at the fort of Pathargarh, close to his capital at Najibabad. Pathargarh was overrun. There was a falling out between the emperor and the Marathas over the division of the spoils as well as the allocation of territories that had belonged to Zabitha Khan. The Marathas continued to ravage and plunder Rohilkhand until peace was brokered by Shuja Uddala with Visaji Krishna in return for a tribute of 4 million rupees to be paid to the Marathas. A separate agreement was brokered between Visaji and Zabitha Khan under which his family estates were restored and his family, taken captive at Pathargarh, was released. Madhaji Sindhya bitterly opposed the treaties, and the rift between him and Visaji Krishna widened even further. The emperor and his allies had a further falling out when he refused to join Visaji Krishna and Tukoji Holkar in invading Avad to exact tribute from Shuja Uddala. Maratha frustration reached a boiling point. The expedition against the Rohillas had yielded much less than had been anticipated, and Shah Alam had no way of paying the sum that he had committed to in return for his restoration to the throne. Under pressure from the Peshwa to raise more funds, and recognizing that Zabitha Khan, who had inherited his father's immense wealth, was the only one who could pay a sizable sum, Tukoji Holkar and Visaji Krishna came up with a new plan. They convinced Zabitha Khan to pay a million rupees in exchange for a full royal pardon, the restoration of his family estates, and an appointment to the post of Mir Bakshi. Holkar and Visaji Krishna had another objective in espousing Zabitha Khan's cause. Mirza Najaf Khan was going from strength to strength. He had assembled a force of 7,000 sepoys trained in the European fashion, 
To that force, he had added the Mughalia cavalry, consisting of Persian and Turkish soldiers, and for a brief moment it seemed that a revival of Mughal power was possible. Holkar and Visaji Krishna, with the help of Hussam Dalla, one of Shah Alam's jealous courtiers, wanted to restore Zabitha Khan's lands and prestige to ensure that there would be a powerful rival to counter Najaf Khan at court. When the emperor refused to comply, the Marathas, furious at the intransigence of their purported puppet, attacked Delhi with the Jats, with whom a hasty alliance had been concluded. The Jat force was led by Madek, with 3,000 crack troops and eight field guns under his command. The emperor swiftly sent envoys to Madek and induced him to defect, promising him a salary of 40,000 rupees a month and the title of Nawab Shamsuddola Bahadur Qaim Jung. When the full Maratha force arrived at the outskirts of Delhi, the court was racked by indecision. The militant faction under Mirja Najaf Khan prevailed, and a decision was made to fight the Marathas. On December 17, 1773, a decisive battle was fought at the Purana Kila or Old Fort. The imperial forces were led by Madek, the cavalry commander Kalichbeg Khan, and the Sepoy commanders Gangaram and Bhavani Singh under the supreme command of Mirza Najaf Khan. The Maratha force, supplemented by Zabitha Khan's Rohillas, Jat soldiers, and Walter Reinhardt Sombre's battalions, greatly outnumbered the imperial defenders. A pitched battle was fought, during which the Marathas lost 17 chiefs, and both sides between them lost 3,000 soldiers. Madek himself was shot in the thigh. The Emperor Shah Alam, having lost the stomach to fight, completely submitted to the Marathas. An elaborate farce then played out. The submission of the Emperor was disguised in the form of a pardon. Visaji Krishna, Tukoji Holkar, and Zabitha Khan after having the Red Fort searched to preempt any form of treachery, arrived in the Emperor's audience hall, looking penitent, with their wrists tied together with silk handkerchiefs. They offered a nazar or tribute of gold coins, and were presented with rich killats or robes of honor, elephants, and other expensive gifts. Zabitha Khan was formally appointed Mirbakshi again, and his family estates in Rohelkhand, Saharanpur, and Merit were restored to him. Outside the public eye, other intrigues were unfolding. Madak's battalions were dismissed, as were the sepoys and cavalry men that had been assembled by Mirza Najaf Khan, rendering the emperor completely toothless. One of Mirza Najaf Khan's protégés at court was Abdul Ahad Khan, a suave Kashmiri who had been a servant of Najib Khan Rohila's. Mirza Najaf Khan had been appointed the first deputy to the Mir Bakshi, and he prevailed upon the emperor to appoint Abdul Ahad Khan as the deputy vizier. With Zabitha Khan, the Mir Bakshi, and Shujad Uddala, the vizier, perpetually absent, 
Mirza Najaf Khan and Abdul Ahad Khan became the two most powerful nobles in the court of Shah Alam. Mirza Najaf Khan immediately started the task of restoring the imperial army, drawing upon the expertise of Madek and Major Polier, a Swiss soldier of fortune. The Sepoy battalions he had raised in the Allahabad days were largely intact, and to them he added disbanded Mughal veterans, as well as Rohila Afghans who had deserted Zabitha Khan when his fortunes had flagged. Zabitha Khan's troubles in Delhi were compounded by the constant attacks on his territories by the Sikhs, who, emboldened by the passing of Najib Khan Rohila, had been regularly crossing the Yamuna in search of plunder. The Sikh bands often reached the outskirts of Delhi, plundering the outlying suburbs with impunity. Sardar Baghel Singh first attacked Delhi in January 1774, and plundered Shadra before returning to his territories. In his work, Shah Alam and his court, written in 1776, Major Antoine Polier offers a brief account of Walter Reinhard Sombre, the soldier of fortune from Strasbourg, who had been in Hindustan for 30 years. Sombre had been a carpenter in the French army, after which he had joined the military as a private in Bengal, rising to the rank of sergeant. Sombre's name was mispronounced as Samru by his Hindustani followers, and it was by that name that he is remembered. After the fall of the French bastion at Chandranagar to the British, he entered the service of the Nawab of Awadh, Safdarjang, and then Mir Qasim, the governor of Bengal. He gained great notoriety while serving under Mir Qasim for the massacre of several British officers at Patna. After serving in the armies of Shuja Uddola, he sought employment with the Jats, which brought him to the notice of Mirza Najaf Khan. In Begum Samru, Brajindranath Banerjee writes about the drama that surrounded the entry of Sombre into the imperial court. Impressed by the military skill displayed by Samru and his French officers, Najaf Khan started negotiations with the object of winning him over from the service of the Jat Raja. Samru was finally offered 30,001 rupees a month, his services being considered necessary for occupying and regulating the Agra district, the capital city which the Khan had recovered from the Jats in the beginning of 1774. Mirza Najaf Khan's former protege, Abdul Ahad Khan, had turned into a powerful rival and he tried to prevent him from recruiting Sombre. 
Sardar Baghel Singh's sack of Shadra gave him an opportunity to intervene. Abdul Ahad Khan represented to the emperor that the Sikhs had become very troublesome and had plundered and burned Shadra almost to the gates of Delhi and that as a means of punishing them and at the same time preventing Samru from joining other rebels in the future, he should be given a pardon and taken into the imperial service. The emperor approved of the proposal and Samru was sent for. Samru was presented on the 21st of May 1774 and received very graciously by his majesty. Samru was ordered to lead an expedition against the Sikhs for recovering the imperial territories usurped by them. Instead of regular pay, he was granted sanads for Panipat and Sonipat for his support and was authorized to possess himself of whatever he could wrest from Kuchet Singh, the Sikh Fajdar of Karnal. Samru had at this time with him five pieces of new cannon, a considerable quantity of ammunition, about 1900 sepoys with a few Europeans and six elephants. Prompted by Mirza Najaf Khan, Sombre politely declined, suggesting that the revenue from the lands he had been offered was not sufficient to cover the expenses of maintaining his force in the emperor's service. Through Najaf Khan's lobbying, he was awarded the Principality of Sardhana, close to Merit, by the Emperor, and the soldier of fortune became a landed Mughal nobleman. In 1767, at the Chauri Bazaar in Delhi, during an expedition mounted by his then Jat overlord, Sombre had met a 14-year-old Kashmiri courtesan named Farzana, who became his lover. Sombre, accompanied by Farzana, who became famous as Begum Samru, took up residence in Sardana. Begum Samru, a valiant and resourceful woman, was destined to play an important role at the emperor's court. Mirza Najaf Khan, who wanted to take stern action against the Sikhs, was bogged down by court intrigue as Abdul Ahad Khan, his former protege, was actively plotting his downfall by reaching out to Zabitha Khan. The weakened Zabitha Khan was, however, unwilling to intrigue against Mirza Najaf Khan, and he spurned Abdul Ahad Khan's advances, turning him into a bitter foe. Having lost his army, most of his men now serving in Mirza Najaf Khan's army, Zabitha Khan turned to the Sikhs and created an alliance with them, promising them rich rewards for their service. In 1775, Bagail Singh attacked Delhi again, this time ravaging Pahardaganj and Jaisingpura. Since Zabitha Khan had not been paying his accumulated debts to the Mughal court, Abdullahad Khan persuaded Shah Alam to send a force to teach both Zabitha Khan and his Sikh allies a lesson. Abdullahad Khan's brother, Abdul Qasim Khan, who had been appointed commander of Saharanpur, was sent to chastise Zabitha Khan at the head of two Sepoy battalions and a contingent of Mughal cavalry. Zabitha Khan, who had mustered a large Sikh force, 
under the command of Bai Desu Singh of Gathal, met the imperial army at Amirnagar, close to Muzaffarnagar, on March 4, 1776. The Sikhs, who formed the Rohila vanguard, using their usual tactics, pretended to retreat before the Sepoys, enticing them to give chase, and then wheeling around to slaughter them after peeling them away from the main force. Abdul Qasim Khan was killed, and Zabitha Khan sent his body to Delhi with letters of condolences for Abdul Ahad Khan, expressing great regret for the fall of the deputy vizier's brother. The astute Mirza Najaf Khan, recognizing the Sikhs to be the most significant threat to Delhi, enlisted the help of the Marathas, and for several months a combined Mughal and Maratha force skirmished with the Sikhs and the Rohillas. In June 1777, Najaf Khan, accompanied by the emperor himself, marched against the Sikh Rohila alliance and engaged them at the fort of Garshan. The Rohilas and the Sikhs mounted a robust defense and took a heavy toll on the combined forces of Najaf Khan, the Marathas and the Nawab of Avad. Najaf Khan started making secret overtures to the various Sikh and Rohila chiefs. The Sikhs stayed faithful to Zabitha Khan, but the Pathan commanders of Jalalabad defected to Najaf Khan's side. In the final attack, Zabitha Khan was defeated, and he fled with his Sikh allies. His son Ghulam Qadr was captured by the Mughal forces. Zabitha Khan's entire family was sent to Agra to be held captive. The power of Najib Khan Rohila's clan, which had dominated the lands to the north of Delhi and the capital itself for years, was finally crushed. The homeless and destitute Sabitha Khan took refuge in the territory of Raja Gajpat Singh of Jind. He decided to embrace Sikhism, took the name Dharam Singh, and was initiated as a Khalsa. A doggerel of the time has immortalized the conversion of Sabitha Khan Rohila. Ek Guru ka do chela, adda Sikh, adda Rohila. The Guru won disciples too. Half sick, half Rohilla too. February 1778, while Mirza Najaf Khan was embroiled in a conflict with the Rajputs and the Jats, Zabitha Khan crossed the Yamuna with his Sikh allies. After some initial successes, Zabitha Khan and his allies, Raja Gajpat Singh of Jind, Dalail Singh of Malod, and Pag Singh of Thanesar, 
were subdued by the Mughal commanders of Saharanpur and Aligarh. Their overlord, Mirza Najaf Khan, summoned Zabita Khan to Agra and restored his territory in Saharanpur to him. He also freed his wives and children from captivity and took him to Delhi to seek the Emperor Shah Alam's pardon. Zabita Khan's brief tenure as an initiated Khalsa thus ended as Najaf Khan sought to restore a powerful buffer between Delhi and the Sikhs. The grateful Zabita Khan offered the hand of his daughter in marriage to his new benefactor, Mirza Najaf Khan. While the Malwai Sikhs were engaged in dealing with Zabita Khan and the Mughals, significant events were unfolding in the West. We return to Volume 1 of Raj Khalsa by Gani Gyan Singh. Maha Singh, the young chief of the Shukarchakia missile, had mended fences with the Bhangis and their combined forces had mounted a successful attack on Multan. The Bhangis were commanded by Ganda Singh, the brother of Chanda Singh, who had perished in the same battle in Jammu, which had claimed the life of Chadath Singh. The city of Pathankot had been ruled by Nand Singh, a subordinate Bhangi chief, who had passed away, leaving behind a beautiful daughter. His widow offered her daughter in marriage to Tara Singh, the brother of Hakikat Singh Kanaya, who was a sworn enemy of the Pangis. The loss of Pathankot to the Kanayas prompted Ganda Singh Pangi to lay siege to the city with Maha Singh, his ally by his side. However, Ganda Singh Pangi was killed during the battle and his place was taken by his son, Desa Singh Pangi, who was a child and yet untested. Abandoning the siege of Pathankot, Maha Singh returned home to Gujranwala and proceeded to capture the areas of Pindapatiya, Lisa Khel, and Musa Khel. He then forged an alliance between his sister and Sahib Singh Pangi, the son of Gujar Singh Pangi, the ruler of Gujarat, who was one of the three Sikh chiefs who ruled Lahore. This greatly increased the prestige of the young Shukarchakia chief. When Sahib Singh, the son of Gujar Singh, rebelled against his father, Maha Singh intervened and acted as mediator and prevented bloodshed between father and son. After resolving the conflict among the Pangis, Maha Singh turned his attention to Sahival and the great fort of Rotas, which he captured. He then captured Kotli Ahangara, bringing into his service a legion of skilled armorers adept at making matchlocks. Maha Singh's next target was Pir Muhammad, the chief of the Chattas who ruled Rasulnagar on the eastern bank of the Chanab. In the history of the Punjab, Sayyid Muhammad Latif recounts the taking of Rasulnagar. Rasulnagar, now called Ramnagar by the Sikhs, situated on the east bank of the Chanab, was held by a powerful tribe of Mohammedans called Chattas. The head of that tribe at that time being a Muslim Jat named Pir Muhammad. Maha Singh, assisted by Jaising Kanaya, made an attack on this town at the head of 6,000 troops, the pretext being the famous Zamzama gun of Ahmad Shah, which Chanda Singh Pangi, after his conquest of the Chattas, had left with Pir Muhammad in deposit, from its being too heavy to be taken across the Chanab. 
Ma Singh now claimed it as the property of the Khalsa or the General Assembly of the Sikhs, the town of Rasulnagar was besieged and the blockade continued for four months. The whole of the surrounding country belonging to the Chattas was depopulated and to use the expression of a contemporary historian, not a grain of wheat was left in the house of a zamindar. The Chattas in vain sought the aid of the Pangi chiefs as they were at this time employed in plundering and conquering Multan and Bhavalpur. The besieged now had no alternative but to sue for peace and Maha Singh put his seal on the Granth, binding himself not to molest Pir Muhammad if he surrendered his person. The Muhammadan chief, on receiving this assurance, came out unguarded, but was treacherously put under arrest by Maha Singh. His sons were tied to the mouths of guns and blown to pieces by the order of the victor, and the town of Rasulnagar was given up to plunder, Mahasingh's fame spread throughout the length and breadth of the country owing to his having captured Rasulnagar and the reputation for valor obtained by him was so great that many sardars who had hitherto been dependent on the Pangi missile now acknowledged the Shukar Chakya Sardar as their chief and transferred their allegiance to him and deemed it an honor to fight under his banner. The name of Rasulnagar was changed to Ramnagar and that of Alipur to Akalgar. The governorship of the newly acquired territory was given to Dalsing, a lieutenant of Mahasing. The relics of the Prophet Muhammad, which fell into the hands of the victors in their sack of Rasulnagar, were removed by Mahasing to Gujranwala and deposited there in proper custody. The son of the legendary Chadat Singh Shukarchakya was starting to emerge as a powerful chief in his own right. Deputy Wazir Abdul Ahad Khan continued to plot furiously against Mirza Najaf Khan, constantly casting about for allies. Zabitha Khan was firmly in his rival's camp and the Marathas were embroiled in their own affairs. Abdul Ahad Khan decided to reach out to the Sikhs. In September 1778, he sent an envoy to flatter several Malvai Sikh chiefs who were camped at the Shalimar Gardens northwest of Delhi, sending them expensive presents and robes on the emperor's behalf. 
The Sikh chiefs happily accepted the presents and then proceeded to demolish a mosque near Rakabganj, the site of the cremation of the ninth guru, Teg Bahadur's cremation after his execution in Delhi. And then, Abdullah Khan, frustrated by his ineffectual attempts to forge an alliance with the Malwai Sikh Sardars, was suddenly presented with a terrific opportunity to increase his prestige and power. The beleaguered Raja of Patiala, Amar Singh, who had been at odds with his fellow Sikh chiefs, most notably Baghel Singh, sent an envoy to Abdullah Khan seeking his support. The wily Malwai chiefs readily agreed to form an alliance with Abdullah Khan, promising him that they would, with Raja Amar Singh's support, help the Mughals reconquer all the territories north and west of Delhi up to Patiala, and even help the emperor take back Lahore and Multan. On June 3rd, 1779, Abdullah Khan, along with Shah Alam's son, the, the prince Farukhunda Bakht, set out with a large army. Arriving in Karnal, he recruited Gajpat Singh to his cause and used him as his agent to recruit all the Sikh chiefs if he could, handing out expensive gifts to win their allegiance. Oblivious of the animosity that existed between the Malwai Sardars, his reaching out to the chiefs greatly antagonized Raja Amar Singh, who he had ostensibly set out to relieve. The Raja felt particularly insulted when Abdullah Khan formed an alliance with Desu Singh of Katyal, who the Raja felt was his vassal. Desperate to find funding for his campaign, Abdullah Khan tried to extract large sums in tribute from the Sikh chiefs in return for confirming their estates, completely alienating them. Amar Singh, learning of Abdullah Khan's dealings with the other chiefs, sent an envoy offering half a million rupees if he turned around and took the Mughal force back to Delhi without molesting Patiala. Abdullah Khan decided to attack Patiala, and Raja Amar Singh fled after sending desperate messages to Jassa Singh Aluwalia, Tara Singh Geba, and other Sikh chiefs across the Satluj. The imperial army camped at Gurram, and the vanguard consisting of Abdullah Khan's Sikh allies and some Mughal horsemen was sent to raid the villages around Patiala. The arrival of 15,000 Sikhs under the command of Tara Singh Geba caused a lot of the Sikh supporters of Abdul Ahad Khan to melt away. And when rumors started spreading of the impending arrival of a Sikh force 200,000 strong, the Mughals fled in disarray, harried by the Malwai Sikhs for four days, all the way to Panipat with a huge loss of men and equipment. Kushwant Singh, in Volume 1 of A History of the Sikhs, writes, The road to Delhi was rolled out for the Sikhs like the proverbial red carpet. It needed one bold chieftain to lead his horsemen into the imperial city, take the emperor under his protection, and with one stroke make the Sikhs the premier power in all Hindustan. But not one of the Malwai Sardars had the sagacity or the courage to take this step. They were little more than brigands to whom the victory at Patiala 
opened up new pastures to plunder. They bypassed the capital and went across the Yamuna to loot the Yamuna Gangetic Dawab. It was left to Mirza Najaf Khan to clean up Abdul Ahad Khan's mess. He reorganized the Mughal army and sent a force 10,000 strong under Mirza Shafi, his grand-nephew and trusted lieutenant, to deal with the Sikhs. Using Zabita Khan to sow dissension among the Sikh Sardars, Mirza Shafi was able to capture Raja Gajpat Singh and force the Sikhs to retreat across the Yamuna. The gains, however, were temporary, and after a few months of skirmishing, the Sikhs were masters of the lands between the Yamuna and the Sutlej once again. Their raids across the Yamuna resumed as well. The disgraced Abdul Ahad Khan was dismissed and Mirza Najaf Khan was formally appointed Vakile Mutlak or Regent. Passing of Mirza Najaf Khan in 1782 emboldened the Sikh chiefs further, and establishing political sway over Delhi and the Emperor Shah Alam was absolutely within their reach. 60,000 warriors of the Buddha Dal, under the command of Jassa Singh Aluwalia and Baghel Singh, marched towards Delhi in February 1783. They bypassed Delhi and rampaged through the territory of the Rohillas, plundering Ghaziabad, Bulandshahar, and Kurja. Emboldened by their successes, they went further south and attacked Aligarh, Hathras, and Farukhabad. The rich plunder was sent back to Punjab with an escort of 10,000 warriors, and the remaining six entered Delhi. The largest contingent, numbering 30,000, was commanded by Baghel Singh, and they established a camp a few miles from the emperor's bastion at a place that came to be known as Tis Hazari, or the home of the 30,000. Dr. Hariram Gupta, in his History of the Sikhs, Volume 4, The Sikh Commonwealth, or Rise and Fall of the Sikh Missiles, tells this story about two of the prominent Sikh chiefs in Delhi. Just at this time, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya arrived at Delhi from Hisar at the head of 10,000 troops. He had been driven out of Punjab by Jassa Singh Aluwalia and others. After devastating the walled city and its suburbs, the Sikhs, on 12th March 1783, turned to the Red Fort to seize the property of the refugees who had taken shelter there. They stopped before the Divane Arm. Jassa Singh Aluwalia's force of 20,000 decided to place their leader on the throne. He was led inside, 
seated on the throne and was loudly proclaimed as Badshah Singh. By this time, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya arrived on the scene. He demanded the immediate withdrawal of the Aluwalia chief from the Divan-e-Aam. Both sides drew out their swords. Jassa Singh Aluwalia at once got down from the throne and ordered his men to vacate the fort, and they all retired to their respective camps. Ratan Singh Pangu in Panth Prakash describes the consternation that the arrival of the Sikhs caused in the Mughal court. Ab nabat hai hum par aai ladan jog fauj hum pe nahi bina fauj hum nah bachai ab inke hum aaye daai hum badiyan in gursut mare hum badiyan in hisan bisare jim jim inko hum dukh dayo tim tim chahe e badle layo ekat dilli chhad turo ikkata karo upaye jim sasso andheri mad mare mat is hi mar jaai to dana un kari salaha hum dilli chhad ab bachte na ha hai begam samru ki aah ab uski puch le salaha misfortune great upon us now we have no warriors at our call without an army we are doomed into their hands we'll surely fall their princes our forefathers killed their debt to them we did abjure made them we suffer such pain vengeance they will seek for sure should we flee from delhi then to save ourselves we have to try or like rabbits timid scared fearful of the night we'll die nobles in the council said if we run we won't survive begum samru might save us waited for her to arrive the courtesan who had married the soldier of fortune walter reinhard sombre was now a woman of great influence in the mughal court and was practically looked upon as a daughter by shah alam she was hastily summoned to the capital because in addition to being an extremely capable and tough administrator who ruled her fief of sardhana with an iron hand she had dealt with the six before and in particular new bagail singh whose force of 30000 was encamped practically at the emperor's doorstep the wily begum samru visited the sikh camp as the official envoy of the emperor and intense negotiations began finally the emperor affixed his seal to the settlement under which dal khalsa was to withdraw from delhi leaving behind bagail singh at the head of a force 4000 strong bagail singh was tasked with maintaining law and order in delhi and in exchange he was given 40% of the octroi collected for the maintenance of his troops most importantly he was given formal permission to build seven gurdwaras at sites that had been associated with the various gurus who had visited delhi and their families ratan singh pangu writes about the effort led by bagail singh to build what would become the beloved sikh places of worship in delhi which became important centers for the community and thrive to this day to singh ji kam deran tora 
प्रथम कियो जो होते कम थोड़ा जहा मात थी दो रही जगा पीहड़े की ताह बनवई होती साहिब दई और सुंदरी मात गुर पत्नी सब जग बिख्यात श्री हर कृष्ण समाध आद जही जमुना डिग गड्डे चंडे त्रै तही पंजे चंडे हर कृष्ण जी जाह बहे जय सिंहपुरे मद बंगले जी अहे सुगम भात पंज डेहरे भये गढ़ झंडे पंज कड़ा कर दे हुती तेग बहादुर जागा दऊ ऊपर मसीत चिन रखी थी सऊ सिंह जी कहो मसीत होवे गेर तो डेहरो बनावेंगे फेर Thus then started sing bagheel modest beginning it is learned the places where the mothers lived were into memorials turned mata sundari sahib deva beloved by guru gobind singh yamuna side guru har krishan's rest banners did the chieftain bring banner fifth boy guru seat jaising pura a mansion tall and thus he built five six shrines flags and kada prasad for all sites two of the guru ninth stood on them now masjids too bring them down declared the chief gurdwaras would be built anew the first gurdwara built by bagheel singh was at telliwada where mata sundari and mata sahib kaur had lived the second was gurdwara bangla sahib where guru harkrishan had stayed during his visit to delhi The next one was Gurdwara Bala Sahib where Guru Harkrishan and subsequently Mata Sundari and Mata Sahib Kaur had been cremated. Gurdwara Sis Ganj was built at the Kotwali or police post where Guru Tegh Bahadur had been executed and Gurdwara Rakab Ganj was built at the site where his body had been cremated. The sixth Gurdwara was built at Majnuka Tilla a site that was associated with both guru nanak and guru hargobind and the last one was built at moti bagh where guru gobind singh had encamped on a visit to delhi the construction of the gurdwaras took 8 months to complete after which bagheel singh returned home with his army per his agreement with the emperor of the sikh panth could have changed dramatically if any of the sikh sardars had taken the mughal emperor shah alam under his protection the emperor who was well aware of the threat that the british posed had been casting about for powerful allies and perhaps he would have welcomed the embrace of the sikhs whose fighting prowess had been demonstrated time and time again unfortunately none of the sardars had the vision and the foresight 
to seize the moment. There was, however, one among them who would have seized the opportunity. Unfortunately, he was all of three years old at that time. The legendary Shukar Chakya chief, Charat Singh, was dead and his fiefdom was in the command of his son, Maha Singh. Three years earlier, a son had been born to Maha Singh's wife, Raj Kaur, while he was away on a campaign. The baby was named Buddha Singh to honor the memory of an illustrious ancestor. After Maha Singh returned victorious from his campaign and beheld his newborn son, he decided to change his name to commemorate his victory. The child would be known to the world as Ranjit Singh. Season three of The Story of the Six ends here. I would like to thank each one of you for joining us on this journey. The story will continue, but in the form of a new podcast from Almost Media, The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire. The tale of the lad Ranjit Singh, who we met at the end of this episode, is an inspiring one. Our new podcast will trace the rise of this young chieftain who scared the dizzying heights of glory and established one of the greatest empires of his time. The story, replete with gallantry, romance, drama, and treachery, ends in tragedy that can only be called Shakespearean. We will be back with the first episode very soon. Please be sure to subscribe to our new podcast. The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of Night of the Restless Spirits, a collection of short fiction that examines the tumultuous events of 1984 from many different angles. His previous book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, tells the stories of many colorful characters who populated the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. The Story of the Six is produced by Almost Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Raga Kirvani on guitar by Gagandeep Singh. Tabla accompaniment is by Jasmeet Singh Chana. Season 3 of Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawani Family Foundation, and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. Thank you for joining us.